0: disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey, and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides, and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I am your host, Brandon Powen, and today I am very happy to welcome two distinct members um, of the ACAP Integrated Clinical Education Panel. Um, and the reason being is because we wanted to talk a little bit today more about clinical education and specifically more on an aspect of that called integrated clinical education, which I'm going to be honest, that's kind of a mouthful for me. So throughout this episode, we're going to call it ICE for short. Um, so I'm, I'm very pleased to welcome Doctors Christine McCallum and Dr. Elaine Becker onto the show today to talk about, um, you know, integrated clinical education along with um, their perspective and their experience working on the ACAP panel. Um, regarding integrated clinical education, um, you know, so to give a little background, I'll give I'll introduce these two briefly, and I'll let them kind of share their stories here. Um, do, for those of you who aren't aware, Dr. Christine McCallum um, served as the chair of the ACAPT integrated clinical education panel. And she is now the current director of clinical education and a professor of physical therapy at Walsh University. And Dr. Elaine Becker was a fellow member of the ACAP's Integrated Clinical Education Panel and now serves as a clinical professor of physical therapy in the Department of at New York University. Well, you know, thank you both so much for all that you've done. I know you both have been involved in a lot of other things outside of integrated clinical education throughout. Um, your experience as, you know, physical therapists and educators. So first and foremost, thank you for all that you've done. And thank you so much for joining us today to share your insight. And, you know, I, I recognize that, you know, there's a lot that I didn't share about, you know, your guys' background and stuff and that everyone's story and reasoning behind why they get in the education or how they get into education is a little bit different. So before we dive in, would you mind kind of sharing, you know, your ba- more background about who you guys are and along with sharing your story about you know, how you got involved in education that led through to where you are now.
1: Sure. Thanks, Brandon, for having us on. Um, I'm Christine McCallum, and I went to physical therapy school at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. It's been a few years since I've been there, but I always um, enjoyed clinical education. And so when I got out into clinical practice, I loved the older people, and so I specialized in geriatric physical therapy. And then I up with my um, DCE at Ohio University, and I started taking students in the clinic. And I found that I really liked the educational component. So I furthered my education and got my master's in higher education administration, and then I furthered that and have a Ph.D. in Curriculum and Instructional Studies with a focus on post-secondary education. So after I worked in the clinic for almost um, a decade, I took a position as the DCE, and I actually went for my um, – PhD once I joined academics because I always had those questions of how does it work and especially in clinical education how does what you learn in the classroom impact how students learn in the clinic and then how I got involved in this panel is I just kept looking for different opportunities to further my own knowledge but also to benefit our students and with the colleagues that I work with in my consortium and um, the rest is kind of history and we'll tell you about the story of how this panel came about during our discussions.
2: Yeah, I'm Elaine Becker, a professor at New York University and their director of clinical education. Um, I'm a pediatric therapist and board certified in pediatrics. I came to NYU uh, at first uh, coordinating a master's program in developmental disabilities, Uh, but I was always interested in getting more involved in the actual basic education of physical therapists. At that time, we had a bachelor's degree in physical therapy. Since then, we've gone obviously to the doctor of physical therapy. I have uh, my basic degrees are from NYU, I have an acquired master's degree from NYU, and a doctor of physical therapy from Temple University. Um, I was very fortunate to be at NYU when we went from the bachelor's degree to the DPT program, um, and I have extensive um background in working with ICE, or Integrated Clinical Education Experiences, because when we admitted our first class back in 1998, uh, Dr. Meryl Moffitt was our director and she designed our first ICE at that time. I've maintained that program and expanded on it all the way to today. So we have had many students um, experience our ice. We're very proud of it. The students, besides having full-time integrated clinical experiences, also in their second year and their third year, they go out one day a week to observe uh, master clinicians, uh, clinicians that are experts in a specific specific field of physical therapy. We have a problem-based Uh, component to our curriculum, so when our students are are doing their examination and intervention courses, they're also working and being mentored by master clinicians. In the second year, clinicians that have extensive background in musculoskeletal and cardiopulmonary systems, which correlates with our program, and in the third year with um, uh, neuromuscular genital urinary um, integumentary endocrine systems as well um, most of our graduates feel that that was one of the most important components of our program and it helped integrate the didactic information they were learning with what they were actually experienced in the clinic and they were able to be mentored by expert clinicians so that always made me feel that uh, I wanted to share this concept with other programs and learn about what they're doing to uh, enhance and uh, progress their learning.
0: Well, I love it, and you know, I'm being that I'm not an educator myself, but a relatively newer clinician, I can say that at my program, um, we had an internal clinic as well that kind of involved a, a kind of similar process to kind of what you had alluded to, um, Elaine. Of course, it wasn't exact, and I can't tell you how valuable that was, to really be able to integrate and just utilize that stuff in the moment and get that current applicability before going to rotations. I mean, something that was just remarkably invaluable. Um, so, you know, I, I recognize that, you know, there are some listeners on who are maybe newer clinicians or even just people listening on right now that may not have an exact exact, complete understanding or clear understanding of what specifically um, integrated clinical education is, kind of what it can look like. Um, before we kind of dive into the panel, would you guys mind kind of sharing um, what exactly is integrated clinical education, to give a little context?
2: Well, we thought it might be interesting for us to actually read to you the definition, so we can start with that. Integrated clinical education, or ICE, is a curriculum design model whereby clinical education experiences are uh, um, purposefully organized within a curriculum. In physical therapist education, these experiences are obtained through the exploration of authentic physical therapist roles, responsibility, and values. That occur prior to the terminal full-term clinical experience. Integrated experiences are coordinated by the academic program and are driven by the learning objectives that are synchronous with classroom content delivery across the curricular continuum. These experiences allow students to obtain professional behavior, knowledge, and or skills within a variety of environments. The supervised experience also allows for exposure, and acquisition across all domains of learning, and include student performance assessment. For integrated clinical experience to qualify towards a minimum number of full-time clinical education weeks required for CAPTI, it must be full-time and supervised by a physical therapist within a physical therapy workplace environment or practice setting.
1: Well, I appreciate that. We decided to start with that definition first because that was part of what our work panel did is we had to to put a context what everybody's talking about. And the key components of that is Integrated clinical education isn't just a point in time. It's a curricular design model. It's how educators design their curriculum, where they're looking at the clinical environment as well as what's going on in the classroom, and figuring out how to develop that model that best works for them.
0: Yeah, no, and I think that really makes a lot of sense because, I, again, that can be something incredibly valuable, but can also be a little bit variable based on what you both had said. And you know, I want to dive in because, of course, you being you both being on the ACAPT panel. Um, Looking at this a little bit more, um, let's start at the beginning of this initiative here and going through like from your guys' perspective, how and why was this panel created and what was the history that kind of brought it up?
1: No, that's a great question, and and I kind of like the history of things, so I'll take that question. Um, So back in 2014, there was a clinical education summit that was sponsored by ACAPT in collaboration with the APTA and the education section, which is now known as the Academy of Physical Therapy Education, but that was in um, Kansas City, and we brought in um, educators, clinical educators, academic Educators, people from CAPI, FSPPT, and it was two days spent talking about the issues surrounding clinical education. And so, from that, the results of that came up with 15 recommendations, and they categorized them as either harmonization recommendations or innovation recommendations. And the difference between those was the harmonization recommendations looked at concrete actions that ACAPT and the clinical education community that. that that they could take for the future to try to create a culture of teaching and learning that's based upon partnerships. And then innovation recommendations, those were the um, areas where clinical education community could research and pilot new directions moving forward. So um, the ICE, the integrated clinic experiences were identified as an area of curricular experiences that we felt that some harmonization was needed. There would maybe a basic understanding of what it is and how to go about that. So um, ACAP then decided to prioritize ICE as an area for a national discussion and that's how that work panel was was created because the ACAP Board of Directors highlighted um, the integrated clinical education experiences is one of the primary areas that could get some traction early on. And then the other two work panels that were also created were the um, common terminology, which uh, the result of that came out with a, a variety of definitions that standardize of how the terminology we're using, and then also the student readiness um, work panel, which identified uh, criteria or objectives for. A, that students should all achieve prior to a full-time clinical education experience at first one.
0: Yeah. And to give listeners a little bit, because knowing that, you know, that, you know, Christine kind of mentioned those other components of it is we actually had released our episode featuring Dr. Gene Timmerberg regarding the student readiness portion of that. Um, The link for that can be down below if you want a little bit more detail um, on that one, because I think that is important to kind of know how all these pieces kind of work together because they kind of all, builds to the same thing to work on these things and it was very helpful to kind of get her perspective on from that avenue as well and you know recognizing that you guys kind of went through the how and the why of this initiative here let's get down to the nitty-gritty how did you guys like actually conduct this how did you get the data to get to answer the questions to really kind of formulate your you know recommendations to the board
1: well we when we tackled this is we wanted to um make it educational research and not just our opinions and so educational research is one of the hardest research environments to to collect because we can't test things in a a clinical like which may be in a clinical environment we don't we don't have the ability to um have control groups and so we're figuring how are we going to look at this big elephant in the room of what is integrated clinical education. So we had three um, components to that survey process, which we termed as a scoping review. And you can read about that. That's, That's kind of the boring stuff. But what we did was we did a descriptive survey among our panel members. We did a systematic review of the literature, and then we also did a series of focus groups with students as well as educators at various points in time. And then from all of that is we collated the information to come up with our recommendations. So it was a scholarly project from the very beginning where we used those three different methods to collect data.
0: And guys, I understand that, of course, with doing any kind of research or any kind of project collecting data of this magnitude is that... There sometimes can run into um, little snags or barriers along the way. And just because it's always interesting to kind of know um, throughout that process kind of what you guys um, ended up experiencing through that. Now, were there any barriers that you guys faced throughout this process of figuring out this data or learning more about this topic?
2: I think uh, some of the uh, uh, problems that we came up against is the understanding, and that's why it was so important for me to actually read the definition, because the definition is something we had to focus on, because many people thought they were doing ICE, uh, but they really were not. So that was a limitation, because people had different interpretations of what. ICE really uh, entails. So um, it's very hard to do a survey and collect information if everybody is not using the same terminology and the same concepts.
1: And one of the barriers, it's not really barriers, but something that we had to spend a lot of time discussing was exactly what were parameters? What, what is a parameter? What is a guideline? So we actually really had to spend some time looking at what words mean um, mm-hmm. to be able to put it all together. And then when we started looking at models, there are so many different models. So many different models and how to then um, put that into language that was going to stand the test of time for our profession.
0: Right, and, and we'll dive into the models in a little bit here, but I'm, I'm always kind of curious as between when, did you guys get the charge versus when did you guys have to give the recommendations? Like how much time did you guys have?
1: I think it took about 18 months from beginning to end. So it was, we met monthly, sometimes more than monthly. We met at um, the national conferences um, through video conferencing. It's a pretty intense process and a lot of behind the scenes work as well.
0: I mean, yeah, I can only imagine how extensive that must have been. Um, You had mentioned, of course, Chris, some of the, you know, you mentioned that there's a lot of different models and different ways to do integrated clinical education. Um, Let's dive into that a little bit more just to kind of get an overall understanding of kind of what exists out there to give a little context, because we also recognize that not one exact way is going to work ideally for everyone in every program. Um, So I think getting a little list and kind of understanding of some of the varieties out there could be really helpful.
2: Oh, well, again, that's quite extensive. Some programs um, actually have their curriculum, ba- you know, surrounding and based on their clinical education experiences. And to the other end of the extreme, it might just be um, a topic in a um, within a class where. Uh, Some time is spent looking at patients with uh, with, that have had CVAs or strokes. So there's a huge variety of specific experiences that might uh, span all three years of physical therapist education in different ways. It could be one day a week. It could be a half day a week. It could be three hours a week. It could be a, a... Course that stands alone, it could be a course that's incorporated into uh, another class, and this, the variety is really quite extensive. Many times it's collaborative learning where uh, students are together with another student. Um, and sometimes um, uh, third-year students will supervise second-year students but always the academic component or the person in charge is overseeing the whole program so there is a tremendous variety of ways people have designed their ice.
1: When we put together put together the paper and the, the final report is we documented what we found in the literature because we didn't wanna use the experiences of our, just the work panel, because we were all from different um, programs, but the ones that we highlighted were the ones that we found that were published and peer reviewed in the literature. So we have um, very nice tables and models that are described But like, just to give you an example, one of the models that was uh, published, surprisingly, when we were going through this, was from my program. I I wasn't expecting to find that, and I actually didn't, I wasn't even, it was on the top of my list that a colleague of mine published about integrated clinical education in our program, and what she did was... um, as one of our neurorehabilitation courses, as part of that course is our students then went out to the local outpatient VA clinic and they provided um, once or or twice a week exercise programs to the vets in our area. And um, and so in our program, that was a part-time clinical education experience that was part of a neurorehabilitation Course. And as Elaine said, other programs have it where they're maybe only going out half a week, a couple, couple hours here or there. But then on the other end, there was an article um, from Debbie Ingram and her colleague that described full time clinical education. But it was after the first year of the program, I don't believe, I think it was about seven weeks full-time, and they categorized that as ICE as well, because it was early in the program, there were specific objectives, so it could be full-time or part-time when you're looking at the ICE holistically.
0: Right. And given kind of the wide variety of options, and of course, considering the evidence and stuff that you guys found in your report when working on the panel, um, apart with if there's any been any new evidence lately that's been kind of released or in the process since that's happened, do we know a little bit more about what are certain characteristics of things that seem to result um, in that integrated clinical education being more effective? like? What do we know given all those things about which things or which aspects seem to be more successful than others?
1: When Elaine and I are actually talking about that is is when you're looking at curriculum, the effect and looking at it from a research standpoint, that's what's difficult because I don't necessarily know that anything that we found was actually measuring effectiveness like cause and effect. If you do this, this is better. What we found is that there's more of an impact And those when you look again from a research perspective effect and impact are kind of different things of how you measure so um it's hard to actually say is one model better than the other we did not actually find anything about that but what we do do know is that students being exposed to people um, other than their classmates during the early part of their curriculum is effective makes an impact on their learning and that impact that exposure to people is outside of the classroom, which is what a typical classroom environment is. Um, and I use the word early, and I, I kind of hesitate to use that, is because we don't have a definition of what early is. Yeah. So thats that first semester? Is that first week? Is it second semester? So that's something that our, our group, that we did not tackle that of what early is, because the, the research and, and the data collection that we had, that, that we completed did not, lead us to any type of conclusion about how early that needs to be.
2: I think that each uh, program it looks at their own ICE and looks at their end result and what their objectives are. And they are um, independently looking to see if the uh, programming that they're providing, the ICE, is actually fulfilling what it is that they are looking for within their program. So it's more individualized to a curriculum.
0: Right. And given that, you know, that it's hard to kind of measure all these avenues that you had kind of both mentioned to your guys's knowledge, is there anything or any discussion on um, even future studies that are kind of looking at, you know, um, variety of methods to measure this effectiveness, like to kind of help narrow, narrow that down a little bit?
1: I am not aware of any discussions about that, and that's a great question because what I find with educational research or, or even outputs of, of our work panel is it, it leaves it up to the reader or, or to the, the people who pay attention to this type of, these type of topics then to, to grasp it and say, okay, now I can design another study that may lead to an effectiveness to determine what's effective, one model is better than the other, because of all, everything that we found was very dependent upon an individual program. And the next move of moving educational research forward of getting some of those answers that you just asked was, is to have partners among different academic programs to start looking at their models using similar outcome measures, because there was no similar outcome measure used to determine um, student impact at all. Every, every researcher had a different idea of how they were going to measure that.
2: I agree with Christine and, um, you know, people look at passing license exam or some programs actually would survey where their graduates started, where they went for employment to see uh, if some of the qualities they were looking to, ins- to um, for those students to have, actually came through. I know one program was looking to work with the populations that were underserved, and then they looked to see if their graduates actually went into practice in areas of underserved populations. So some programs were trying to, you know, look to see if the impact actually. Um, helped along, you know, all the way through the process. Uh, some programs are just looking to, to prepare their um, students better for their full-time clinical experiences so they could look to see how they actually accomplish that. But none of those outcome measures are that specific. And they're very general, and I think more work has to be done in this area.
0: No, it seems to make sense. And I mean, just given that you had said about that one aspect of underserved, like working more in the underserved community, is that I can only imagine there's so many other factors in play with that between location, finances, and, you know, apart from just school. So I know it's not definitely not a clear cut um, issue right. by any means. But uh, at least if we can help narrow that down more, I think that's going to at least be better. And you both had mentioned parts of this a little bit earlier. <laughs> Um, you know, but you know, what did you guys formally come up with when it comes to when it came to um, how to have a help a program de- find and develop a guideline um, to implement um, integrated clinical experiences based on what they need to do for their program.
1: So uh, the question was is what 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 did we find? What was our outcome of our work panel? And we came up with eight parameters, and I will summarize those rather than read specifically the documentation. And so we had determined that. An ICE experience can occur in any academic term prior to the t- terminal clinical education experience. ICE experiences need to have outcomes that are that are measurable by that program. Um, ICE experiences could be a component of a didactic course or it could be a standalone course, and I think we gave some examples earlier of that. Uh, the timeframes of how those ICE experiences are implemented into a, a program is up to the program. It could be, again, half day, uh, once a week, or a full five days over a course of eight weeks. It it really is up to the program. It could occur in a variety of learning experiences. It could be in the traditional clinics, or it could also be in other community-based settings, depending upon what the objectives are for that experience. But with that, what, what we said about where those learning experiences are happening, if a program is going to count those experiences to the CAPTI requirements of full-time clinical education experiences, those need to be in, um, should be completed in a physical therapy workplace setting. Uh, ICE experiences also should have some form of student assessment, but that assessment can be dependent upon the program and the objectives. The ICE experience, as Elaine mentioned earlier, should be coordinated by the academic program but also be in partnership with that community or clinical education site. But the academic program is still the one that oversees that entire experiences because they're the students. And then finally um, clinical education experiences are, can be supervised by a variety of people. It could be by the traditional clinical instructor that we, typically think about. It could be another healthcare provider. It could be whoever that program or that faculty member within the course arranges with their clinical partner. But then again, if it is going to, that that experience is going to qualify for that full-time experience, a clinical education experience for CAPTI, then there is the requirement that the supervisor is a licensed physical therapist. So when you look at those eight parameters collectively, that makes integrated clinical experience, but you just can't pull one out and say, okay, I have an ice.
2: Yeah, I think uh, um, Christine hit all the different parameters. And I think it was important for us to identify those parameters, because that's what makes uh, gives the commonality amongst ice. So because there is so much um, variety, those parameters are what makes it um, and which reflects into the definition of ice.
0: You know, you both had mentioned you know, regarding the evidence a little bit more beforehand, and I'm just curious if, if we know anything about what evidence says about using you know, ice for other healthcare providers. Like is there anything that we've learned from um, medicine, nursing, or any other professions that are incorporating or using ice or something similar as ice in their education?
2: Well, some of our our articles that we used in in our analysis were from other professions. We had one from speech, from nursing, and from um, uh, medicine. So they are using uh, ICE experiences, uh, and they've identified those experiences as well. They might be using them. Um, for slightly different purposes. Again, it's very individualized up to the curriculum and the program.
1: We did look at a variety of health professions. Um, Going back to one of the earlier questions is what is the barrier, I think, of going through this process? We had a lot of discussion because uh, within our group and then also with um, others as we were building these parameters, I think some individuals wanted us to, more a little bit more prescriptive of saying that an ice experience is has to be X number of hours or anything over this number of weeks we can't we wouldn't consider that ice and so we really went and looked at what the literature was telling us coupled then with our focus groups that we had with uh, the students as well as the clinical and academic educators to be a little bit more broad and so this puts the onus onto those individual academic programs to determine what is ICE in their program. They have to make those decisions, what is best for their educational program and for their students.
2: But again, those, when they make that determination, they have to go back and look at those parameters. We also came up with 10 guiding principles for programs that Um, either want to uh, identify and see if what they are doing qualifies as ICE, or whether they want to establish an ICE within a program that does not have one as yet. Uh, And we are looking to establish those guidelines and possibly um, publish those guidelines to help programs develop what we now know and have uh, identified as a legitimate even though there is a very broad um, perspective on it
0: right and given kind of that broad perspective on it and recognizing of course taking into account um, the research you guys have done but also the perspectives and um, perspectives that you've heard from other faculty members you know from different programs and even I'm gonna ask you both to kind of even consider how you guys have kind of started your version of ice within your program in terms of what are some of the bigger barriers that you tend to find more consistently among um, probably more more programs when they're trying to integrate um, some form of ice to their ability? Like, what are some of the biggest issues that usually tend to come up initially with this?
2: Well, I don't know about issues, but there a lot of things have to be in place. You have to have a buy-in of your administration. You have to have appropriate resources. You have to have the personnel that wants to go and, uh, and, and, and initiate this experience. Um, they have to look into their community to see what types of sites they want to partner with. Um, they have to make sure it fits appropriately that they can either have a standalone course or have a component of a course that will work for this. We now have to incorporate ICE into our programs and that's uh, also uh, a good um, reason that people are all looking into how can we do this because we're being a- actually asked to do this if we do not already have it. So I think you know having the economic resources the buy-in from the administration the relationship with the community Um, some programs have uh, faculty practices and that makes it so much easier for them but not every uh, program has that and we were lucky to have very strong clinical partners that we could work with because we do not have a faculty practice so it can be done and I've uh, worked with a um, A university that wanted to establish an ICE went over the parameters, went over the guidelines, talked with them, stimulated their way of thinking, letting them know what is an ICE, what is not an ICE. They started to focus, and I came back um, uh, and invited a year later and found out that they had established some really good Uh, programs and I was very excited about that but it was that conversation of where does it fit in how does it fit into our our goals and objectives what is it what is it not it is not just bringing a patient into class and everybody observe the patient that's not a nice asking a student to go out and find uh, uh, extra experiences that's not a nice and we also established that um, Uh, simulated experiences were not at this point in ICE either. So that had to be clarified for programs, but I think it's very exciting because this is a a wonderful way for students to learn in a synchronous way while they're actually taking courses and applying what they learn and coming into a very exciting profession. So it really is, um, uh, students usually really love ice experiences. So I think the, the future is good.
0: What Do you foresee that simulations will eventually be a part of ice? Like, Do you feel like that's changing given the bigger and wider discussions that are taking place regarding simulations and education? Well,
2: uh, I think Christine could add to that as well. I think there is a panel now looking into simulation.
1: What we found, we had some um, discussions early on within our work panel about simulation, and we felt that that topic was beyond the scope of what we could do. And so we made the recommendation to ACAP that a a different task force needed to tackle that project. So in your question about whether or not simulation could replace some of clinical, replace clinical education, we actually found a study that that 25% of a a full-time clinical education experience was replaced with simulation. And they found that the outcomes they were studying, there wasn't a big difference in the outcomes. With that being said, um, simulation is a learning experience. And um, for for students to learn. It's a different intervention where students can learn to apply whatever the objectives are, a clinical skill, communication abilities, or whatnot. And we kept coming back to is when you're looking at um, what captive requirements are, they have a minimum number of full-time clinical education experiences, and where that that takes place, you can't replace simulation with those minimum requirements. But it, simulate, could simulation replace some t- clinical education if you were above those minimum requirements? The research is showing, yes, the students' um, outcomes are, are similar. They're not any worse, um, but I think more research is, is that. So I think a lot of it is just how you are context, um, conceptually framing what simulation, the purpose of it for, what's it for, and then what you're using clinical education for.
0: Gotcha. No, that makes sense, because I just know that's a huge topic talking about right now, and I just felt like I had to connect that. So I appreciate that. And, you know, I I thank you both for kind of sharing your perspectives on ICE and about, you know, your guys' work and service throughout this panel. But of course, we wouldn't have an episode without asking our final question that we like to ask everyone, because... Of course, with our podcast being called the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, we have to ask this. Now, this does not need to be related to ICE. This can be anything, entry-level, post-professional, any avenue um, regarding anything either we talked about today, if you want to, or if you want to bring something else different that's separate, completely fine. It's kind of a a free answer. So the question is, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, physical therapy or otherwise which aspect would you change and how would you change it?
1: So that's the big question.
2: Yeah, really. <laughs>
1: Honestly, when I think of the big picture uh, of how um, PT education would is all put together, my dream would be that we could once again cont- look at having students, the appropriate students, enter the academic program maybe earlier than at a postgraduate level, but having educational programs that lead for when someone starts their year after high school, and then six years later, or four years later, or five years later, they're, 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 uh, they're coming out with a DPT degree, but they're starting earlier on, and there's an integration of the professional program, Along with the undergraduate program, somehow tying that in together. I have a bachelor's in physical therapy and I had, you know, my, my prerequisite courses that I was required to do. And then I came out to, it was actually a three or a five year master. So I did three years undergraduate, two years in the program. But I think so, as we moved to the doctorate, we knew what that we wanted to reach a doctorate level of education. We knew that we wanted a higher level of using evidence for practice, but now we have um, this lengthy educational program that's increasing the cost to the student. Sometimes those early connections are not there, but wouldn't it be amazing if we could start looking at what are the prerequisites that are actually needed? And, um, and then tying, integrating the professional program with the undergraduate program somehow so you can have, I don't know, just a different model of of giving our a different option for our our future physical therapists. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but that's kind of what I've been
0: thinking about. (laughs) Yeah, no, it it totally does. And, you know, very, okay, again, very uh, end of one perspective here. So very limited. Um, I, I definitely concur with a lot of the points you make, especially when, Um, getting more of a blend, because I thought it was interesting in my program how our undergraduate thing, we really didn't cover much about exercise or PT in general besides one class, really. Yes, we had nutrition, we had some other baseline things, but I think I thought it was interesting having a bachelor's of sciences pre physical therapy and how little I actually really we covered physical therapy within that. So I don't know what the answer to that is, and I'm not a specialist in that. But it that that rationale and that reasoning seems to certainly make sense to me. But Elaine, what's your what's your big answer to the our big question?
2: <laughs> I don't know if my answer is as big as the question, but I think that uh, physical therapist education is. And the clinical education component is so important because it impacts on our practice. So if people are having difficulty finding certain affiliations like acute care or pediatrics, and they go to different models of education where they have you know, a larger experience at the end, and maybe teeny experiences along the way in some of these areas because the resources aren't there. My concern, or maybe it's easier to uh, come upon musculoskeletal or private practice types of environments. So my concern is that if we're not developing our our therapists in all of these areas, in um, geriatrics and pediatrics and acute care and and all and integumentary and all the different areas of physical therapy and we don't put as much emphasis on that then people are not going to go into those fields and we as a profession are going to lose out those um, areas of expertise and we're going to be putting ourselves more into an one aspect, and I think physical therapy is a broad uh, profession, and it should be a broad profession. And we can have expertise in so many areas of um, of healthcare, and we we shouldn't limit our education because we don't have the resources, and therefore we won't have the resources. Does that make any sense? So that that's my concern. Um, that we develop all aspects and all systems of our profession and that we we become experts in all areas that that we can so our profession is as broad as any other medical profession and we don't narrow ourselves i don't know if that makes sense
0: <laughs> yeah no it does and and there's a lot of i mean you both have made pretty good points on both those topics because between doing this this podcast, we've definitely heard quite a array of answers regarding you know education. Um, the ones that you brought up certainly have definitely been mentioned quite a few times. Um, so there's a lot of things that usually people have brought up, and I like how people like you guys have both kind of mentioned different things and different potential ideas because I think they all need to be considered um, with moving forward. Um, but again, thank you both for all that you've done and for coming on today to chat. I recognize some other people might. Perhaps want to learn a little bit more about ice, or if they have, if they want to maybe ask a question or follow up a little bit. Where would you recommend that people either um, look look online to learn more or to reach out should they have a question on anything that was talked about?
1: Well, first of all, I'd like um, the publication that we had on the ice work panel was published uh, in January of this year in PTJ and in that reference it goes through our process but also our parameters and then the model descriptions we have a, a very I think a nice summary of the parameters related to the model descriptions of what we found in the literature so that's a great resource for our readers but they can also reach out to me at my um, work email is uh, c-m-c-c-a-l-l-u-m at walsh.edu. Um, I'm happy to, to help any way I can.
2: I feel the same way. They can reach out to me at uh, NYU. It's eb2 at nyu.edu. Uh, I'd be happy to talk about that. And, again, we're looking to develop those guidelines for, for um, programs and... Um, I'd be happy to share those guidelines with anyone who would like to discuss it. I was also part of a publication uh, that was the Application of Educational Theory and Evidence in Support of the Integrated Model of Clinical Education. It was in the Journal of Physical Therapy Education in 2014. I think that's a really good article. And um, if anybody wants to read about a little bit more about the underlying concepts of um, integrated model of physical, of of clinical education.
0: I love it. I love it. And again, thank you both so much for all that you do regarding this topic and of course, many other things throughout education. Um, And of course, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk and share your insight with our listeners. has truly been a pleasure.
1: Well, thank you, Brandon.
0: Thank you. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content.
2: If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HETpodcast, on Instagram, HETpodcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com.
0: And for those of you following along in the syllabus... Extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's
2: continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.